Good morning. I hope you all have had a great week. I'm excited for this Lord's Day. I'm always excited for the Lord's Day. It's a day where I can take a nap at noon and it's, it's allowed. <laughs> Today marks the fourth week we are into the Sunday School series. Last week, we had a topical excursus led by Seth entitled God's Providence and Providing Leaders for His Church. In Seth's lesson, he did a biblical survey of God's ordaining leaders to shepherd his church in both the Old and the New Covenant. If you've not listened to that lesson, I would encourage you to do so. Because in it, you get to see the big biblical picture of how God chooses men to care for his church, which, as I stated the other week, I think is topically relevant for us as we consider who will help Pastor Thomas as he steps into a part-time role. As an aside, imagining Pastor Thomas doing anything part-time is far more difficult for me to think about than preparing this entire lesson. Now that I've touched on what was taught last week, let's get back to the agenda at hand. First, let me summarize my definition I used from the first week of providence. Providence is God's act of care, protection, guidance, governing, and sustainment of his creatures and creation for his divine purposes. Second, we did a scriptural overview of question 14 to help us see how providence somewhat assumes the whole part of the catechism answer. This week, we will be talking about the mystery of providence. And I believe that uh, this entire series is helping us prepare looking for the providence as an entire scriptural overview. So if you guys remember, next week we're going to be just going through the major biblical epochs and looking through uh, how, how providence unfolds. For this lesson today, we will first define what mystery is with an observation of Deuteronomy 29.29. This will not be an exhaustive observation of the term mystery, but it is essential to understanding what it means when we link the term mystery to providence. If you would like a more exhaustive observation of mystery, I would refer you back to Dirk's third lesson, on the decrees of God. You can find this, you go on our church website, you go to Sunday schools, and then you scroll back. It's also in our Baptist Catechism series. A proper understanding of mystery, and this is in general, not only when we're talking about providence, will help us both with an understanding of God, God's word and practicality within our own lives. Then we will observe more closely the mystery of providence by way of observing Joseph, Abraham, and Jesus. And finally, we will close, if we have if time allows for it, with uh, meditations on chapter 5 of our confession, specifically in uh, paragraphs 4 through 6. So before we journey through this lesson, let us revisit Catechism question 14. What are God's works of providence? Let's read this together. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for 
protecting us another week, providing us our meals for the week, and sustaining us unto this Lord's Day, even the drive here today, Lord. Thank you for another day where we can get together as the saints. We can taste that slice of heaven. We can hear your word preached and that we may rejoice in songs of worship to you. In Christ's name, amen. One of the first things that comes to my mind when thinking about the term mystery are criminal cases that have yet to be solved. So, for example, let's say the police department finds graffiti on the side of our church. It would be the duty of the police to find the criminal that vandalized our church property. However, when talking about divine mystery, we're not using the term mystery in this way. The mystery case to be solved. Something hidden left for us to discover. Instead... As Sam Renihan pointed out, a mystery is not something intentionally hidden so as not to be found or understood, but rather something revealed partly, something made known incompletely. There are few great examples of mystery found within Scripture, but a good example of this is the Trinity. Now, when talking about the Trinity... Uh, This could be a three-year-long Sunday school series. I don't wish to go down that rabbit hole, but Scripture makes the doctrine of the Trinity clear enough that to deny it would be to put your soul in jeopardy. Why does it put your soul in jeopardy? Because you're denying who God is. If God has revealed who he, he says he is, and you say, no, you're not, then you're not worshiping the Christian God. And we know That John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, talking about Jesus. And we also see in Acts that lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God, Acts 5.4. There are plenty of other scriptural examples, but for brevity, I'm just uh, just trying to point out that Scripture makes clear who God is by way of Trinity. I have to say this as an aside when talking about the Trinity. Struggling with the doctrine of the Trinity is not the same thing as denying it. It's one of those doctrines that that most, if not all, Christians struggle with on their pilgrimage. If you need help with understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, as it has been revealed in God's word, there are plenty of resources and gifted brothers in this church that are willing to help you. Most importantly, your pastor is done with sabbatical in two weeks. Go to him, and he would love to help you. That's part of the reason why God has ordained elders to help us understand his word better. In two weeks, let him rest. A final note on the Trinity for this lesson. Scripture does not make clear how the Trinity is possible to our limited human understanding. To that, we must submit ourselves to the work of God. With the Trinity, as well as any divine mystery, we should be willing to tell God, I don't know how this is possible, but I trust you, and I trust your word. I'm going to draw an illustration here. I was thinking about whether or not I should put this in, but I'm going to put it in. My grandmother, uh, she's been on church for many years, and she asked me, knowing that I'm going to seminary, she goes, could you explain to me the Trinity? She's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So 
I, I mean, it's such an exhausting question to answer somebody. So I'm trying to like go through it slowly, but she's just trying to jump to different views, wrong views of the Trinity. And I'm like, no, Nana, that's, that's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity's this. And I'm trying to break it down for her. And she goes, well, I don't understand how the, all of that works. And I said, Nana, it's, it's a mystery. And she just means, well, that just means you don't know. I mean, like I said, that's, that's partly true. There's, there's a sense when we talk about mystery, we don't know everything, but part of it has been revealed. And I think hopefully one day uh, my nana will understand what I'm trying to communicate with her in regards to the Trinity. It's clear in Scripture, but how it all works together, we don't fully comprehend it, nor do we know. Does anybody have any questions up to this point? No? Okay. Prior to becoming Reformed, I was so immersed in philosophy that I tried to treat divine mysteries like criminal cases. That is so unbelievably intellectually exhausting, and it is also a waste of time. There are people in this world who dedicate their entire life to practice this in vanity. Yes, they may publish books and get prestige for trying to explain the unexplained, But these mysteries are left hidden to us according to the good counsel of God's will. God, by his own purposes, has decided not to fully reveal to us why. Mysteries should also not be confused with a personal lack of knowledge. Dirk, in the lesson I referenced back to at the beginning of this lesson in my introduction, used a short illustration to make this point. Mystery is not like the youth minister who gets asked a difficult question by his youth about scriptures and just simply says, that's a mystery, when it's not even a mystery in the first place. He just didn't know the answer. The term mystery is not a get-out-of-free-jail card for a lack of knowledge. Just say you don't know. And that doesn't also negate your duty not to do the research, to, to learn your word, to know the doctrines of the church. But it's safer just to say, I don't know, than just to say that it's a mystery because those are categorically different things. With all of this in mind that we have discussed, let us observe Deuteronomy 29, 29, and we will begin in verse 25. For context, Moses is reminding the people of Israel in the wilderness that God has rescued them from captivity and is establishing a covenant with them. If the Israelites break this covenant, there will be curses. Then there's a transition in verse 24, where foreign nations will ask why the nations of Israel is destroyed like the many other cities that have been destroyed for denying who God is. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Let us begin our portion of reading in verse 24. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not 
allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Verse 29, our verse in focus here, is an exhortation to the Israelites to hold on to what God has told them to do. If they fail to hold on what God has told them to do, there will be condemnation for breaking the covenant. There will be curses. Hence, why it is so important for the Israelites to hold on to the things that are revealed. That's why this this passage is in here. That's why this verse is in here. In other words, the Israelites are without excuse because God has told them. Not only has God told them, but he's reminding them what he has shown them by taking them out of captivity, out of the sojourning land in Egypt. If we look at the first clause of verse 29, it is interesting. That is, that is in this exhortation, just after telling the Israelites what would happen if they broke the covenants, that acknowledges that there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Those secret things are not for the Israelites to question. Because they know, or rather, they should know. This is a, this is a matter of exhortation. They should know the God who took them out of captivity and is entering into a covenant with them. Now, there are many other things that I could say about this text. But the key takeaway for, for this lesson is this. It is important for us to know the things that God has revealed to us. It is equally important to know that there are things that God has not revealed for us. Remember, when talking about divine mystery, we're talking about the things that are partially revealed to us. Any questions? You may have already mentioned this, I may have missed it. How are, I mean, you may, might get to it later. Do we, how do we distinguish between when mystery means something that isn't revealed or is partially revealed and when it is something that is revealed, like in the New Testament? So just to make sure I'm following your question right, how do we distinguish uh, a mystery that's partially revealed yeah and um and being revealed later in the new testament we're, we're actually going to uh, be getting to that when we do our scriptural overview so that's going to be in, in the coming up and i'm actually going to be touching on that a little bit when i talk about joseph abraham and jesus because there are things within scripture that we talk about uh as, as shadows and then substances so shadows are, are things that are um, you can kind of see, but not fully. So uh, there's a really good illustration I heard of this recently. I'm sure it was one of the Rennie hands where um, if you see a shadow around the corner, like if I saw Wilton's shadow around the corner, I wouldn't look at the shadow and be like, hey, Wilton. <laughs> but it reveals that Wilton is around the corner. So uh, I might not know 100% that it's Wilton. It's definitely a figment. But then when he gets around the corner, that's the substance. Okay, I see Wilton. And there are things within Scripture in the old covenant that's slowly revealing who God is. There's a mystery. Who is, who is this Messiah who will come? And then when we get to the new covenant that, uh, that, that's revealed in the Gospels, 
who this person is. It's Jesus Christ. So there is a there is an, a, an unfolding of providence that does get revealed throughout redemptive history. There are other things that when we have the closing of canon in Scripture um, that just still haven't been revealed to us and may never be revealed to us. Does that answer your question? Now, let's attach this word mystery to providence. The mystery of providence is that which is partially revealed by God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We do not fully comprehend either now or never why certain things come to pass. Speak with an older saint who has long walked the pilgrimage, and they will either tell you, I knew not why those things happened so long ago, but it's clear to me now why God has allowed those things to happen. Or they will say, I don't know why it happened, but God knows. Likewise, when we observe the word of God, going back to your question, we could see the mystery of providence unveil itself time and time again. As Seth rightfully pointed out, I alluded that I would be discussing Joseph. Uh, Joseph's well-known line, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is Genesis 50, 20. How can this be? How can one man's deed of evil be meant for good by God? The answer is that it's a mystery. We do not know the entire secret counsel of God's will, but we know what God has revealed to us in his word. And we can see within Joseph's life the wickedness of his brothers selling him to slave merchants. Why must this come to pass? Because God had something bigger in mind than what Joseph refused to see. Joseph's brothers, excuse me, refused to see. Now, you guys probably thought I was going to be saying flip to Genesis 50, but I'm saying flip to Genesis 15, 1, 5. We're going back to Abraham. Genesis 15, we see Abram, not even known as Abraham yet, going into a deep sleep with a great darkness besetting upon him. And then we see, let's start reading in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possession. Rhetorical question. What is God talking about? God's talking about the Exodus. God's revealing to Abraham the plans that he has for Abraham and establishing his covenant with Abraham. What is so great about the Exodus, the old covenant Jews? God rescued them out of captivity. But the great Exodus narrative does not happen by accident. Joseph and his family had to be in a foreign land where the descendants would have to become afflicted, just like God told Abraham. Abraham. 
Now you may ask this question in listening to all of this, and this is this is one of the this is one of those questions that I think a lot of people ask either to themselves or the scoffers ask. And some people ask it with good intentions, other people do not. The question is this, why did any of this have to happen in the first place? God could have just made a world without sin. We wouldn't even need an Exodus story. Like I said, many scoffers ask the same thing. And they try to say these things as if to appeal that God doesn't exist. Here's my answer to that question, to the scoffer, and to the inquiring Christian who genuinely wants to know, like their heart's just set on wanting to know this. You're not God. The secret things belong to God. Referencing back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. His knowledge is so perfect and infinite. This is the way in which he has decided that all things would come to pass by his glory. This is the best possible world. God has created it in this way. Like Joseph, was not Christ our Savior also sold for mere coin? Yes, he was. He was betrayed by his own disciple, Judas. Was he pierced at his side as prophesied by Isaiah? The piercing on his side, as Isaiah prophesied, was true. So then, was the cross an accident? No, the cross was not an accident. For Luke writes in Acts, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why was Christ crucified? To defeat evil, to reconcile man to God, to bridge the gap between Jews and Gentile, to establish the new covenant, to send forth the Holy Spirit which proceeds from him, and so much more. And none of this would happen without God's providence. And all, it's all for his glory and the reason why he chose all of this to happen according to the counsel of his own will. I want us to meditate on, on a few chapters of our confession to wrap up this lesson. If, if you guys have a copy of the confession, uh, we're going to be going to chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at paragraphs 4 through 6. This is not going to be an in-depth exegesis of, the, of these paragraphs. I just want us to look at these paragraphs to see what were the forgers of the confession thinking about as they were writing these things. Chapter 5, paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that its determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not of bare permission, which also he would most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet, so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author and approver of sin. James Renahan in his commentary, not to be confused with Sam, I brought up Sam earlier, so his dad, James Renahan writes in his commentary 
of the Second London Baptist Confession, careful theological expression reminds us that God is not the author of approver of sin. Chapter 3, paragraph 1 of our confession. For the sinfulness of their actions flow only from their own sinful nature and never from God. Sinful people do sinful actions. This threat is important and aids us in thinking carefully through the reflection between the decree, providence, and sinful actions of angels and men. As previously stated, the Lord has no part in committing of sin. Though the sinful acts of angels and men fall within the decree, they flow only from the wicked hearts of those who commit those sins. The holy God is always righteous. He never winks or approves sin. The repetition is essential. Now let us look at James Renahan points out that you should read chapter or paragraph five and six together. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read those two paragraphs together. And then I want us to think about this together. So I'm going to open up the floor for some reflection on these two paragraphs. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strengths of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other than just holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect by his appointment for his glory and their good. As for this wicked and ungodly men whom God, as the righteous judge, for former sin does not bind and harden, from them he does not withhold grace, whereby they might be, have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and withhauls, gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God uses for the softening of others. I want you guys to, to take note of this. Pastors wrote the, these documents. This wasn't just some guy at a seminary who's just publishing a bunch of books, although some of them were definitely writing a lot of stuff. But these guys were, were shepherding for their churches. And they came together and they forged this document and they reflected upon the word of God. And this, this is the articulations that they came upon. Of course, we know that this articulation comes from the Westminster and then they fixed it. I want to hear some of you guys' thoughts on these two paragraphs. Let us reflect on these two paragraphs.
that jumps out to me from both the paragraphs five and six is how <coughs> at the end of paragraph five it's talking about how this will be for sanctification of the saints and uh, all of it to the glory of God. And then at the end of paragraph six it's showing how all those who will not repent and will be given over to the temptations will actually uh, be given over to destruction. And that contrast between the two, um, how you can have similar things being worked out and yet to different ends, all to the glory of God. So as Prashant just noticed, there's a contrast between paragraph 5 and 6. 5, talking about how God is... And we've talked about this back in week one. Has God, God has a special providence, a special care for his church. And he's going to see through their sanctification, see them through unto the end of Christ. And there's also a work of providence by, by, that's given unto the wicked. And um, both of these, despite their contrasts, the, the end goals is to bring glory unto God. Any other observations? to Christians who are going like, like thinking about like a pastoral kind of counseling or somebody going to a pastor for counseling on situation um, people in that kind of situation are typically uh, grieved over or broken over sin or the situation um, and seeing the encouragement that would bring that even though they're in the situation or they're dealing with these struggles that God is going to use it for their, not just for God's own glory, but that also includes their own good. So, as we just have had pointed out, that there is encouragement to the Christian that despite the struggle and sin, that they recognize that sin, first off, and there's a pastoral heart that goes behind this, that the Lord is going to, that the Lord is using this to rebuke us, to show us the error in our ways, so that we, that way we may recognize where we are unholy, to strive towards holiness. Anything else? All right. So we have God who's going to bring to his ends goodness, even the sin that comes within our lives, 
it's, it's all for the end of goodness and God's holy purposes. Thank you, Pastor Thomas. You should consider becoming a pastor. That was, that's pretty good. All right. All right. Well, in conclusion, I hope that this has kind of opened up the door so we could see what the mystery of providence is just within our mind doctrinally as we're preparing to do an overview of, of Scripture to the, through the four major epochs, many different, and we're going to talk about that, many different people break the epochs into different parts. Um, but I'm just going to do it in four because we're, we, have, we don't have much time to just kind of go over how God reveals, us, reveals himself, reveals who Jesus is, how God protects his church. And we have to also recognize that there is some mystery in all of this. We don't understand how it all works out, but we do know that the end is for the good and the glory of God.